John chapter 12. Big passage with lots of pieces. This is the word of the Lord for you today. Again, reminding you, He's speaking. Will you listen? He's speaking to you now. This is Jesus speaking in the passage. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said, it it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even, sorry, many even of the authorities believed in him. For the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. 
For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let's ask God's blessing again. Our Father, we ask that you would speak. And you have chosen to use your word and spirit. Your word, your revelation, your spirit illumining our minds. Empowering the word, applying it to our lives. And we ask that you would speak. That we might hear and believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of you know the name C.S. Lewis. You've probably read many things by him. Lewis is one of the great, uh, I guess, influences in evangelicalism in the 20th century. He's written a number of great books that you've encountered a multitude of them. I'm sure Chronicles of Narnia, everybody's read that. It's great. It's not his best, but it's great. Um, A tremendous man with a tremendous uh, insight. My favorite quote from him was, he believed everybody should learn Greek so that they are able to read Greek poetry. That sums up C.S. Lewis in so many ways. But people don't always know how Lewis came to know the Lord. He's a tremendous man and a tremendous saint and had tremendous influence in the church, but they don't entirely know how he came to to know that. I mean, the story's kind of, it's out there, it can be easily learned, but many people do not know it. See, Lewis was first and foremost not a theologian. He's very explicit about that. You read Mere Christianity, very much not a theologian. Lewis was first and foremost a literary critic. He's he's a literary guy. He's all about literature, thus the reading poetry and such. And so as Lewis was wrestling with his world in the earliest part of the 20th century, he's wrestling with life, he's struggling to understand what's going on, he begins to retreat from all of the hurt and the heartache of the world in front of him. And he goes into literature. Because in literature, there's story, and there's fantasy, there's not world wars, there's not terror, there's not bombings, there's none of those. It's story, and I love it. And as he's wrestling through this inner turmoil of going to story and running from difficulty and darkness, he has a number of friends that come around him. One of them's name you might know, J.R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien, author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings trilogy begins to evangelize Lewis. And it's interesting, his evangelism takes a tactic that probably is not going to matter for most of us, but for a strong literary critic would make a big difference. Lewis begins to hear Tolkien saying, listen, part of why you love story is because we've been designed that way and because there is a story that's true. And it comes to a head one night where Tolkien, Lewis, and I forget the other gentleman's name. It starts with a D. I just can't remember off the top of my head. they're, They're looking together at this concept of story. And Tolkien says something to the effect of, you miss the Bible because it's the one true story. It's what you've been looking for all along. Lewis, it kind of rocks his world and he goes home. He credits that conversation to be the moment where the Lord kind of transformed his life. And the next day he wakes up, he's a different man. 
And he, he great sayings like, you know, I, I love the Bible, it's the true story. He, he says stuff like that all of the time. And part of what Tolkien and Lewis both do so brilliantly in their writing, in their understanding of story, is their ability to contrast good and evil and to frame it so that the bad guys look appropriately scary and the good guys appropriately victorious. I mean, you remember as a kid, the first time you read the Lord of the Rings trilogy and you find out that the bad guy never actually shows up in the whole story because he's so powerful, he doesn't have to. He has a mouthpiece that speaks for him, but you never see him. You don't know what he looks like. He's so powerful, he's not even there. Or as a kid, when you, you find out about the White Witch and it's been winter in Narnia forever. They did such a brilliant job of capturing the hopelessness, the darkness, the, the brokenness, the, the bad side of the story, so that when the good guys show up, it's like everything is different. That's the vein of thought that John is capturing in this part of his passage, of this part of his book. You remember, he's been telling the story of Jesus, and he's been telling it, and John is very much story guy. He's been telling it in such a way that as you engage it, it's constantly calling you back to say, who is Jesus and what will I do with him? Who is Jesus and what will I do with him? And here in this latter part of John chapter 12, he he frames out the story in such a way that the negative backdrop is so perfectly painted. Not, you know, mauve curtains or whatever colors are. It's, It's the black background of darkness in which Jesus shows up. We're going to look at two themes. They each have a number of kind of subpoints. The first to see is, is just the hopelessness of the human condition apart from Christ. The hopelessness. And this is all negative. This is all dark. This is the black backdrop, the, the scary curtains in the background. This is the darkness of the passage. You remember just previously, last week's sermon, Jesus is talking about how he's going to go to die. In verses 20 through 26, he's, the famous, you know, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it doesn't bear fruit. I'm going to go die and I will bear fruit. So in this conversation of his death, he turns now to verse 27, which is one of these verses that I think we've probably all read a bunch of times. We've read this book, but we, we skip over and we certainly skip over the emotional turmoil of this part of the passage. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, incarnate, very God of very God, light of light, God of God, says, now my soul is troubled. I don't know, just pause for a moment. This is one of those sentences that you have to understand within context. Six-year-old little boy or a 13-year-old little girl come to you and say, my soul is troubled. How likely are you to be like, oh man, this is a huge deal? Not, right? Because we understand within the framework of human development, those words might have a little bit less punch because of the experiences of life in which they've had. If the President of the United States sat down and said, my soul is troubled, I really want to listen to that. 
Because I don't know what that means. I mean, it could, it could mean there's a terrorist thing in America. We don't, that's scary. Here we have the second person of the Trinity saying, my soul is troubled. If we're arguing from lesser to greater, right? Six-year-old little boy, teenagers of any kind, <laughs> president, Jesus. Okay, well, what's, what, what's troubling him? What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour for this purpose. I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He's actually staring down the barrel of hell. And he's saying, I'm really upset because I know I'm about to suffer the wrath of God in totality. And I know what that means. You see, what he is experiencing now is this foreknowledge of he knows what God's judgment looks like and he's dreading it. Again, put this in perspective. You didn't think of the six-year-old getting ready to get spanked or sent to the corner or talked to by mom or dad. Everybody's lived that wait till your father gets home kind of moment. (laughs) Here Jesus is experiencing not the wait till your father gets home. It's, oh, by the way, wait till the wrath of God comes upon you. Ah. And it's interesting to see that his turmoil, this turmoil in the soul of Jesus, is the direct result of the sinful condition of the fallen man or woman, boy or girl, young or old. He's talking about the consequences of not knowing God. He's talking about the consequences of sin. He's talking about the consequences of even the tiniest little violation of God's law. For the wages of sin are death. You see, he's framing out again the the backdrop of the story of salvation. It's like we're watching the play of salvation take place in real life history and and they're putting in all of the pieces of the set behind and the most overwhelming and important part of the piece of the set is that God will destroy sinners. And Jesus knows what that means because he's about to experience it. Greatest theologian of all time. You see, already this should be undercutting any confidence that we have in the humans, in the people in the story, not the divine trinity, but in us, humanity. It's like that scene, if you ever watched scary movies when you were younger, and the moment where they go to do something really dumb and you feel like yelling at the screen, like, don't do that, it's a terrible idea. Don't go off by yourself. It never ends well. Star Trek, don't wear the red shirt. It's not good. It's framing the background. Look, God God will destroy sinners. Don't trust the humans. They're the problem in the story. But Jesus correctly resolves the turmoil. He's not excited about enduring the wrath of God. It's not one of those things. Oh, yay, I get to be rejected by God. He commits himself again. I, I, I know this is why I'm here. I was sent from heaven 
sent by the Father to obey. It's my hour I will glorify. In fact, actually ends with this beautiful prayer. Father, glorify your name. It's so short. But what a commitment to, again, going to the wrath of God. (laughs) Then a voice. And we kind of find out a little bit about the kind of voice that this is. This is not the high tenor voice that I possess. This is, I wish I had a James Earl Jones voice. This is the time for it. (laughs) Father, glorify your name. How does the Father respond? I've done it already. It's also still being accomplished, and I'm going to do it again. Past, present, future. This big picture. My name is being glorified. And you see again, oh good, maybe the humans will respond right on this one. Maybe they'll get it this time. And what do they do? The first one's like, oh look, it's thunder. Oh, you literally just heard the word of God from his mouth. And you're like, oh, it's thunder. Yikes. And others are like, well, no, thunder, that's silly. It's an angel. Oh, please, no. No, 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 you're missing it again. Remember the parable that Jesus tells where from death, guys are like, just, just send somebody back to tell my family about heaven. And look, even if they heard from heaven, they wouldn't believe. They did hear from heaven, literally, and they don't believe. You're like, oh, people, people, what are you doing? Jesus answered, this voice came for your sake, not mine. He he didn't need the encouragement. He's already fully equipped. Instead, actually, all it does is damn them. In fact, that's the next thing he says. Oh, by the way, judgment in the world. Boom. And I'm going to be lifted up from the earth. Now, this I find to be the most intriguing section here. Again, setting that backdrop of just removing any confidence that we have in people. Jesus answers and says, Voice is not for my sake, it's for your sake. 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Okay, they would get this. The Jews get this. Now the ruler of the world will be cast out. Okay, they get that. Now I, when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And we're like, well, that's a neat kind of thank you for the little note of clarification, the commentary there, John, that's helpful. The interesting thing is they actually understood that too. They've read their Old Testament enough that when Jesus says, I'm going to be lifted up from the earth, they get it. They know he's talking about how he's going to die. Remember verses 20 through 27, he just told them he was going to die, and now he's telling them how. And so they ask a snarky question. I'm going to be generous and call it snarky. Verse 34, the crowd answers him. We've heard from the law. We read the Old Testament. We know. What do we know? We know that the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, we know that he remains forever. We've read the Old Testament. We know that the Messiah will rule and reign forever. How can you say you're going to be lifted up? How can you say you're going to die? You obviously can't be the Messiah because the Messiah never dies. And I have to give them great credit. This requires an extensive knowledge of the Old Testament. This is not the type of question that like, just somebody off the street is going to ask. 
This is the type of question who somebody has read the Old Testament over and over and over and over again, but remembers only the parts they want to remember. And so they ask Jesus, look, if you say you're the Messiah, how can you say you're going to die? Because the Messiah never dies. How can you say? And it's like, if he's the Messiah, would you not just listen to him? If he's actually the Messiah, it doesn't matter. He's the guy in charge. Just do what he says. Like, just listen. It doesn't matter. Just whatever he says, do it. Because he's the Messiah. You see, it's interesting. You're seeing here already, you have this backdrop of the wrath of God, which is the payment for sin. You have this backdrop of these people that are just deaf and dull. They hear the voice of God and like, oh, it's thunder. It's talking thunder. Oh, my goodness. And then you hear, have them, the Bible, and they're ignoring the very word of God. They're misinterpreting it. They're applying it incorrectly. They're forgetting he is the word of God in front of them, and they're still rejecting him. And honestly, that right there should be enough that anybody reading the passage would say, don't trust like the humans in this story. Go to Jesus. Go to the God man. Go to the 100% God, 100% man. That right there should be enough to undercut any hope we have in humanity alone. But that's actually the good news compared to what comes next. I mean, that's actually scary to think about, isn't it? The wrath of God is actually the better part than what's following. Jesus says these things, he, he departs, verse 36, 37, and John explains why. And this is his sermon, this is his commentary on what's taken place. He, he's explaining why this is so important. Though he had done many signs, verse 37, before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Who has believed what heard from us, to whom had the arm of the Lord been revealed? We're going to read that passage next week. It's chapter 53. But 39 is where it gets scary. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah says, why? Because God has blinded their eyes. And God has hardened their hearts so that lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts They would turn and God would heal them. You see, the the backdrop that, that John is painting is a backdrop where one part of the set is composed of the wrath of God and one part of the set is composed by humans being deaf and dull and dumb and stupid. And one part of it is composed by them misusing the Bible. But the whole overwhelming theme is that God is their enemy. Not not just that they are God's enemy. It's not just that they don't like God. It's that God is their enemy. He hates the wicked. Now, some of you were raised in a culture like I was in which um, we value niceness at all costs. It becomes kind of the governing ethic of what it means to be right, I guess, is to be nice. And the problem with that is that sometimes we read that onto the scriptures and we forget that's not God's value set. He's not nice. He's kind. He's gentle. He's loving. He is love. 
but he's not nice the way we think about it. And here he's framed a setting in which if you were to look at all of the people in the story, the humans in the story, the, you would say, man alive, why would I ever trust them? They're at odds with God. He is their enemy. They're under his wrath by their own merit. And they're deaf and dull and dumb and stupid. Yet, if I'm going to be honest, how often do I try to exclude myself from that list? I mean, I'll be honest about yourself. I mean, how often do you do that? Where it's like, well, yeah, I mean, I know. I know people are under the wrath of God. And my goodness, I know they're deaf and dumb and stupid. But it's always in the they pronouns. I know they are that way. I mean, they should never trust in their ability. They should never trust in their understanding. They should never trust in their knowledge. They should never trust in them. But I'm all right. I mean, we never say it that crassly, but do we not do this? And then we marvel at why we just see Jesus as being so small. We marvel that our faith grows cold. We marvel that, wow, salvation just doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Well, no kidding! You didn't have anything big that you thought you needed to be saved from. You see, that's the first theme that John paints here, like an artist of just framing it so negatively. Look, humans aren't the heroes in the story. Only humans. They're the problem. They're the bad guys. They're the evil ones. They're the ones that are the enemy. And if you relate to them, you're relating to the bad guys. And if you're relating to Jesus, you've missed the point. And it's within this backdrop, this tremendously dark and evil and negative and bad backdrop that verses 44 through 50 show up. And if you don't get the previous verses, 44 through 50 do not make sense. Jesus cries out. Oh, I even skipped over the glory of man there in verse 43. They, they love the glory that comes from man and not the glory from God. Jesus cries out, verse 44, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but him who sent me. Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. And you see, again, if you, if you don't get the negative backdrop, if you get the I'm all right, you're all right, or if you have a, a mentality of, well, I mean, I'm doing okay, I'm better than my neighbors, this idea means nothing. That Jesus would be the mediator between God and man. Because if God and man are hunky-dory all the time, we don't really need a mediator. Do you understand what I'm saying? If, if there's no problem between God and man, it, it, it doesn't matter. A lot of my classmates in school are from South Korea. Living in South Korea is very different than living in North America because they live with the constant fear that a country just to the north of them is going to do something crazy and kill millions of people. And they've been trained to loathe that government. 
To assume that North Korea and South Korea could reunite as one country next week would be ludicrous. They hate each other. North Korea, because they've been taught since childhood that uh, South Korea is evil, we should blow them up. And South Korea has been taught from childhood we should be afraid because they're going to blow us up. And that gap is insurmountably large. I was talking with one of my friends just two weeks ago, and he was saying, even if North Korea were free today, it would have to stay a separate country because we hate each other too much. The gap is too big. And friends, that gap between North Korea and South Korea is infinitely smaller than the gap between God and man. And here we have one saying, look, I've crossed the gap. I'm representing both sides. When you see me, you see man, you see God. I am the mediator that has never existed before. But not just that great mediator, but then he continues, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words, what an idea that this one who is the mediator, the one who will, will transcend God and man, the one who can cross that gap also gives light in a world filled with darkness. And again, honestly, we live in such a beautiful part of the world. We live with such a wonderful government. We live in the state of states. It is fantastic where we are. Watch the news, though. Tom prayed for it in the prayer of intercession. The the terrorist activity all over the world. Terrible things happening. Terrible things. And people who just don't have answers to any of it. It's just captivating watching a, a liberal media try to figure out how do, we, how do we emotionally and mentally process terrorism. At the heart of the Enlightenment effort, the heart of modernism, heart of postmodernism, heart of liberalism is a denial of evil. How do we process terrorism? Because that's the one thing that really looks like evil, but we've already denied that evil exists. It's just darkness everywhere. And here Jesus is saying, look, in the midst of your world of darkness, in the midst of all of your confusion, in the midst of all of the lack of answers that you have, I am the answer. I am the light. I am the one who shows you the way to go. I am the very words of heaven. And he ends this paragraph here with, and what what are the consequences of being with me? I know that, verse 50, I know that God's commandment is eternal life. This mediator, this hero, this light offers actual life. And again, what a contrast with everyone else in the story. Humanity condemned by the wrath of God. Jesus is going to conquer it in just a few short hours after this happens. People who are just baffled by the words of God, he's going to have eternal life. People that are misusing and abusing the scriptures, he's going to be eternal life. People who are at odds with the Father and captivated with the glory of man, Christ will provide eternal life. And the amazing thing is that he will provide it and then give it freely. 
What a God. We talked about this in Sunday school. He, he gives it freely. <laughs> what do you have to do to earn your salvation? Well, you can't. You can't be good enough. That's the whole point. You don't trust the people in the story, the humans in the story. You trust the divine God-man. What do you do to earn your salvation? You, you, you can't. You turn to him. You trust in him. You hope in him. Well, what do we do with a story like this? John is preaching a sermon to help us kind of frame our mind around how we see the scriptures, how we see the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And I would suggest as your pastor a number of ways that we should employ passages like this. First and foremost, do not turn a blind eye to the dark backdrop of the story. I mean, we're really tempted to do this. Again, I know I am, raised in a culture of nice. It's very tempting for me to, to try to turn off the darkness of it. To not want to talk about sin. To not want to talk about the fact that my neighbors, if I love them, they don't know Jesus, they go to hell. To not talk about the fact that people will spend eternity apart from God. To not talk about the need... You know, and honestly, there's a couple of things that, that come in here. One is, I think in many cases, it's an issue of cowardice. We do. We have cowardice in our blood. We don't like to talk about hard things because that requires us to take a stand. And I think it's also some, too, because we've drunk the Kool-Aid of our culture that said all answers are right answers as long as they don't hurt someone else. And you mix cowardice and confusion and you end up with very weak faith. Brothers and sisters, we must never forget the dark side of the story. Because it's in the midst of that that Jesus shows up. And it's in the midst of that darkness that he is this bright, shining light. He is the light and life. Secondly, I would encourage you to, to actively try to cultivate an active faith. And by this, I mean, faith is not, we've misunderstood this many times. Many of us have been taught incorrectly. We think of faith as this kind of passive thing. Like, I, I, just, I just believe. It just kind of shows up. No, that, no, no. I mean, it's like being married or having children and saying, well, love is just this passive thing that shows up. No. It takes a tremendous amount of effort. It takes a tremendous amount of effort to continue to actively build on that, and our faith is no different. It takes intentional commitment to believe in things. Sometimes it's very difficult. And it's a faith that we nourish and build upon. It's like a, it's like a plant that has to be watered and built up and strengthened. It's not something that we just, our faith exists as this kind of thing in a vacuum. And we do that by using... The appointed means, the Word and the Spirit of God. To actively consume the Word of God, corporately, individually, the supper, to partake of God's tremendous work that we might be grown, developed. Because Lewis and Tolkien are on to something. 
God has designed us in a certain way. Why is it that the vast majority of the scriptures are narrative? Why is it? Because it's telling a story from start to beginning. It's telling the story of humanity, how God made us, spoke everything else in existence, but then formed us of dirt or rib. And then how we messed the whole thing up. And then how he's implemented a plan from the very beginning to fix it all. And not to fix it to the same condition, but to fix it better. And as we understand that and we grow, what gratitude will overflow and what worship and what wonder at what God is doing. And I suspect that if you're walking with the Lord today, you're sitting here going, I want more wonder in my life. I want more delight in God. I want more worship and zeal and thankfulness. Get the story back in your brain. Go back to kids' Sunday school. Think about the whole thing and delight in God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this is our story. And we thank you that uh, these figures are so true and real because they are true and real. But we can relate to them. Watching humans miss the point time and time and time and time again. And I have done likewise. We thank you that while we were still sinners... Enemies of God, Christ died for us. Thank you for the forgiveness that we have in him. Give us eyes that we might look to Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.